0: Haleberians and members of the wider Halebury community wherever and whenever you are listening to this. This is Keith White from the class of 62, bringing you the fifth of our regular podcast series using audio material from the Halebury Archives. This episode is the first of a two-part series celebrating the life of John Neal, who passed away in March. John was a leading teacher and administrator at Halebury for 40 years beginning in 1957 at the Brighton campus, where he taught maths and science. In 1960, he was appointed head of science and was the senior chemistry teacher. The science block at Keysborough is named in his honour. In 1963, he accepted the task of reorganising the boarding school and served as senior boarding house master for several years. Through this time, he coached cricket, football and tennis. John was appointed school vice-principal in 1983, a role he held for 14 years until his retirement in 1996. A life governor of Halebury, John is survived by his wife, Joan, and sons, Andrew, OH 1977, and Douglas, OH 1980. As a tribute to John, we will now play an address he delivered on Founders' Day, 1989, in the Aikman Hall. He is introduced by principal, Michael Aikman.
1: Our speaker this morning is our Vice-Principal, Mr John Neal. Mr Neal joined the staff over 30 years ago in 1957, when the senior school was still at South Road. In 1960, he was appointed Head of Science, a position that he held for some 22 years. Then in 1982, he was appointed Vice-Principal. It may not be generally known that Mr Neal was also twice Housemaster of the Boarding House, known as Rendell House. He coached the first tennis team for three years and the second 11 for some 12 years. Mr. Neal has made an outstanding contribution to the development of Hallebury during all of that time, and I now invite him to speak to us. Mr. Neal. Mr. Aitman and fellow Haliburians, Founder's Day is a relatively late tradition at Hallebury. It was first introduced in March 1963 itself a significant date in the life of the school, for in February of that year classes were first held on this property. In the old Haleburians Association section of the Winged Heart the name of the school magazine in those years this report appeared. On Monday the 11th of March there took place the first Founders Day of Halebury College. Organised by the school in close cooperation with the association The day proved to be an outstanding success and we look forward to the future when Founders Day will become the most important social and sporting day in the school year. The old boys fielded cricket, tennis, football, shooting and debating teams against the school and the school arranged an organ recital and an excellent art show. The highlight of the day was a combined service held in the quadrangle in which all sections of the school community took part. Founders' Day arose from the concept of the then headmaster, Mr D. M. Bradshaw, that as we moved to Keysborough, there could be a problem in that the school may become divided, and that devices needed to be put into place to emphasise the oneness of Halebury. The day that was chosen was a public holiday, although not a school holiday, so that parents and old boys and friends of the school would be able to attend and a vast crowd did so. The theme was the recognition not only of the beginnings of the school by Rendell but also public recognition of the continuing debt that those currently at the school owed to so many people who had assisted in the building and development of the school. Often at the combined assembly the work of individuals was recognised and presentations were made often by groups of people in the school to the school to help with its development and functioning. And Founders' Day in that form continued until the early 1970s when the public holiday became a school holiday. And at that time, the Founders' Day celebration was moved to take the form of a special assembly held on the first Wednesday in February to coincide with the opening of Rendell's halebury In recent years, the Founders' Day assembly has been linked with the installation of school offices. But Founders Day has continued for some 26 years is itself testament to the correctness of Bradshaw's perception. We continually need to emphasise the fact that though we operate now in five parts, Castlefield, Newlands, Berwick, Pelican and here, that we are one school, a school with common goals and expectations, a school which aims to produce an identifiable Halebury man, not a Castlefield man or a Newlands man, but a Halebury man. We must also never lose sight of the fact that Halebury has not been what it is today. Even if we go back ten years, I would say that those who sat in the old gymnasium celebrating Founders' Day would not have realised that ten years later we would have this building and its associated drama and music schools, would not have a chapel, would not have an all-weather hockey and tennis courts, would not have our athletics complex, would not have many of the facilities that have come in the two prep schools. Certainly Berwick would have not been a thought in anybody's mind at all. And yet to achieve these things and many more, we must have had a very fine springboard, a springboard which had been building up since the mid-1950s. As I said earlier, 1963 was a key date in the development of Hallebury. It was the day in which the planning of the previous few years had come to fruition, and I thought it would be worthwhile spending a few minutes simply to paint a picture, if I can, of what Hallebury was like just before that move came. 1957, when I came to Hallebury, was a time of great hope in Australia, certainly Melbourne was full of confidence after the celebration or the conducting of the 1956 Olympics. But Halebury at that time was by today's standards a harsh place for both boys and staff and it was very much a product of its times. There were some 770 boys in school 420 of them being in senior school which was forms one to six. And the school was very much in the last stages of a growth phase which had seen it go from 81 boys in 1942 to 530 in 1952, and finally peak at just over a thousand in 1959. Building had kept pace more or less with the enrolments through the forties and fifties, and there was virtually no more space to expand. Imagine if you can, a thousand plus boys from sub-primary to Form 6, jammed on the site at Castlefield, which today was occupied by some 350 small boys and on which there were very many more buildings than we have there today. It was a very crowded place. Boys had to work and live on top of one another. Mr Bradshaw had a plan of trying to hold the numbers fairly constant at just over a thousand and he achieved this from 1959 to 1961. The aim was to try and consolidate and improve facilities. His waiting lists, however, grew and grew. It was a crowded place. Classes in Forms 1 to 4 were large. 40 to 45 boys was the standard offering that presented you as you went from class to class. It was not unusual to have desks on the classroom platform. Teachers taught some 34 or 35 periods a week out of a 40-period program. In that year, we had two classes in Form 4, 87 boys, Above that, the numbers fell off, as that was the way things happened in those days. And We had just on 60 in Form 5 and 30 in Form 6, so that the classes in 5 and 6 were quite small. Boys sat external public examinations at the end of Form 4 and again at Form 5 and again at Form 6. And the Form 6 examination was at that time the entry examination for the University of Melbourne, which was the only university in the state. And of course at that time there were no such things as quota scores, or quotas, or cut-off scores, or penalties for repeating Form 6 a second time. Of the 30 that were in Form 6, a significant number would be boys who were repeating simply to have a final year and enjoy themselves. The showpieces of the school were the memorial hall and the library. The number and quality of turf wickets for matches and practice were of a standard rarely equaled elsewhere. But the facilities in general classrooms were minimal. The science facilities were primitive, with equipment that most schools accepted as basic essentials being non-existent. Televisions, overhead projectors, tape recorders were unheard of. The classrooms were extremely hot in summer and virtually unheated in winter. I remember the headmaster's instructions were that boys were not to remove jackets or ties in class, even on the hottest day, and that he required male staff to wear suits and gowns at all times in class and about the buildings. In winter boys had to be actively discouraged from wearing overcoats and gloves to class and I certainly recall one or two younger men who wore car coats under their academic gowns. At that time we had boarders, most of them were boys from the country and they were all placed in Rendell House. They swamped the day boys. They also made a contribution to the life of the school far in excess of one would expect from their numbers, and they lived in truly spartan conditions. The seniors slept in fibro-cement unlined bungalows which were intolerably hot in summer and unbelievably cold in winter. The boarders rose at 6.30 every morning and were required to run for between one and three miles. This was to prepare them for the house cross-country run which Rendell had not lost since 1945. After the run They all had a cold shower because the hot water was provided by a wood heater. The heating did not start until boys got up in the morning to stoke it. Even in the coldest of weather, the boys were required to have that shower. The Army Cadet Unit was a dominant force in the school. The unit was one of the largest in the state and was continually growing as all boys from Form 3 upwards were expected to be cadets. Only a handful who could prove a real medical problem or a moral objection could find an alternative activity. And While cadets met on Tuesdays, they seemed to be involved in activities right through the week. Prefects and probationers, which were the historical name for school leaders, were invariably drawn from the cadets. They were either senior cadet under-officers or senior NCOs. The situation was that if you hadn't made it in cadets, you could forget school office. In sport, the school had a proud record. It had achieved public recognition through the efforts of one John Marshall, who was an outstanding performer in the 1948 and 1952 Olympics, and who broke and created many world records. In AGS competition, Halebury won the swimming every year from 1951 to 58, athletics from 55 to 57, and were very competitive in the other major sports without ever winning. A fierce house competition existed within the school, and it was accepted that inter-house football matches caused many more and severe injuries than could be expected in inter-school matches. Still boys and their fathers looked forward to house football with great relish. In retrospect, the school was a very confident, close-knit, self-supporting community. Most boys lived relatively close to the school and close to each other. and The school seemed to have large numbers of characters, both among the boys and among the staff. That may be partly due to the times, but it also may be partly due to the closeness physically and in terms of where people lived of those times. In 1958, a tremendous decision was made, Halebury accepted an invitation to join the APS. And many of us didn't realise at the time what that meant. Meetings with the older public schools started in 1959, and they were usually a disaster, with on a hiding to nothing, particularly in football. It was not only that the firsts in each sport were in trouble, but to underage teams all the way down. In first-eleven cricket, we could occasionally upset the older schools. I remember in 1959, we disposed of Geelong College, and in 1960, upset the mighty Xavier. But these were fairly rare occurrences. And I've never seen a time, time that I've been here, when school spirit flagged so dramatically and so quickly. In the Winged Heart of 1959, the boy editor writes this plea Quality required of all Haleburians is perseverance. We may never rival the larger and older public schools in sport. Certainly we shall not do so for a long time yet. But we must never stop trying or give up hope. A plaintive cry indeed. School esteem and confidence fell so quickly during 1959-61 to that the school community demanded something be done. Ways had to be found to be competitive with all the schools in this expanded APS competition. The other schools who went in with us were starting to expand and a number of the older schools were actively growing. Mr Bradshaw and his council in 1961 at last accepted that holding the school at a 1,000 boys was no longer a proposition. Certainly the demand for places was strong and was untapped, but the Brighton site could not be expanded. At a public meeting held in the Memorial Hall at Brighton it was revealed to the Halebury community that the Council had planned to purchase 49 acres of land at Keysborough, and that about half the school would ultimately be established there. Very few at that meeting had ever heard of Keysborough, let alone knew where it was located. Initially the plan was to run a junior school on this site and also to provide some playing fields and that the seniors would be training at Brighton or bust out here. Once that plan was known, there was a period of quite intense lobbying and the senior staff convinced Mr Bradshaw and he went to council and they changed their mind and decided that whatever the difficulty, it should proceed to locate a senior school from Form 3 to 6 at Keysborough over time. And so the die was cast and building began in May of 1962 and first classes began here in 1963. It was not till 1969 that the whole senior school was relocated here, and that is just twenty years ago. To me, twenty years doesn't seem long. To those of you who are at school, it is probably a very long time. Those who were involved in that transition find it hard to imagine now what it was like in detail. It's certainly hard to match it with the facilities that we have today. With the start of a new school at Berwick this month, another challenge is opened. It's a challenge which is yet to be taken up. It's a challenge which offers us great possibilities. I wonder what Founders Day in the year 2009 will make of this venture. Certainly, if our record of the past 20 years is maintained, they should be proud of that decision. Thank you very much.
0: What a far-sighted snapshot of the school given 30 years ago, and a very succinct appraisal of the origin and reasons behind Founders Day. I found it very interesting to hear John's take on turning the clock back just 10 years from 1989. In the next episode, we'll bring you some material from 1997, the year after his retirement. I remember John most fondly. He joined the staff in the same year that I started Form 1. He was my form teacher in Form 2 and coach of the second 11, which I was fortunate to captain in 1962. He was always warm, approachable, and very witty. Well, that's it for this fifth From the Archives podcast. The next episode will be coming in May. If you've got a comment to make or a story you'd like to tell, please get in touch. My home email, redhillsouth at iCloud.com All lowercase. Voicemail would be nice if you can manage it and don't forget to include your name and final year at Hayley. This is Keith White, signing off. From the Archives, Series 1, Episode 5, April 2019.